Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Hard to believe that we just um, have a few more days left in the month of May. Uh, it wasn't that long ago that the month started, and now we're uh, pretty much nearing the end of the month of May. I don't know where the time has gone, but it has gone by quick. But what I do know is that um, podcasting as frequently as possible, even when there are um, days off in between uh, from the last time I was on the air up until the present moment, even though there might be some uh, small gaps, what I do know is uh, making it a priority to podcast as frequently as possible is uh, necessary because, for one, uh, the results are always good. People are listening. But two, you all, my listeners, want to be um, constantly informed because by being constantly informed, you get a better story. If you all aren't being constantly informed, then how can the story maintain relevance? Well, how can any story maintain relevance? So the bottom line is the more informed we are, the better the story will get. So uh, here we are into the beginning of the actual uh, part being part three of what is called the race to the Dan. But isn't it fair to say that this uh, book that we're talking has a uh, has part of its uh, title being the race to the Dan? Andrew Waters's To the End of the World, Nathaniel Green, Charles Cornwallis, and the Race to the Dan. So yes, uh, part three to this book is a race to the Dan. So the bigger question is, are we going to be talking about the race to the Dan, given that we are in part three now, or is, or is it not far around the corner? Well, I can tell you this much, it's not far around the corner, but in order to get to the Dan River, we still have to um, learn more that there is possible that's relevant and learning how we are going to ultimately get to the Dan River. And for those of you who um, aren't sure where the Dan River is, it's a uh, tributary uh, river that is a tributary that flows into the Roanoke River. So basically the Dan River runs along the Virginia-North Carolina line but starts in Virginia and goes into uh, North Carolina. So our first uh, leadoff question for this uh, segment is going to be the following. Uh, Given General... Cornwallis was not present at Calpens, were his forces of 1,150 British troops soon to be joined up by Alexander Leslie's regiment of 1,500 men, considering both commanders were less than 30 miles away from the Calpens uh, battlefield where the battle had taken place that morning of uh, January 17th, 1781. So what do you all think? Um, Cornwallis, and um, soon he's going to be joined up by Alexander Leslie's regiment of 1,500 men. Cornwallis has a force of 1,150, so that means we're looking at uh, 2,650 men if they are to be uh, joined up, which they will be. Uh, but the bottom line is, um, were his forces, were Cornwallis's forces able to be joined up with Alexander Leslie's? Uh, the answer is yes. General Morgan knew of Cornwallis. Uh, he knew of Cornwallis's whereabouts, rather, I should say, per intelligence report findings. So, hey, these uh, pickets, uh, guards, people, 
they're constantly on the prowl. They're constantly on the search. Okay, Cornwallis came from the east, so we've got to have people stationed somewhere in between or somewhere uh, not far from where Cornwallis's previous location was because if we don't have people stationed in the vicinity, then how are we going to know... Um, how are we going to know uh, what to report that's accurate and what's not? In other words, yes, you can get a report, but remember what we said from a previous podcast or learned about? That it was all about the quantity of the intelligence report finding versus, rather the quality, I take it back, pardon me, the quality of the intelligence finding versus the quantity. Sure, you can have multiple reports all you want, but if those reports aren't relevant, then the quality of information obtained doesn't add up either um, as well. So, yes, General Morgan's uh, pickets are providing him with, and scouts are providing him with some very good intelligence uh, report findings. That is from a quality point of view. So, thanks to these uh, intelligence report findings, uh, General Morgan decides to go about ordering soldiers all of these the soldiers, he's going to he's making it clear that they need to gather every piece of necessary uh, provision or every amount of necessary provisions possible. Why is that? Well, well, provisions are essential, folks. You know, we're talking like uh, muskets, rifles. You know, even from the enemy, we're talking ammunition. We are talking uh, provisions, like even in the forms of uh, coats. And throughout the history of war, sometimes uh, a defeated um, army, that is, if their soldiers being dead, more often than not saw their own jackets be strip, stripped off of them, just so that the uh, victor had enough clothing to survive. Sounds like robbing a deceased person, but... It, on an actual battlefield when you know they're dead, but sadly that um, did happen. And not to jump ahead into history, but even in the Civil War, it was known, in the United States Civil War, it was known to happen. So General Morgan is making it very clear that all of his soldiers gather not only the necessary provisions that they uh, came into battle with, but any other necessary provisions they can find on the battlefield, even if it, it's on the side of the enemy. So besides gathering the necessary provisions, uh, Cornwallis is making sure that something else is secured. What do you think that is, folks? Could it be horses? Could it be British troop prisoners? Or could it be both? I'd like to think both, but at the same time, if you are in a bind and you don't want to get caught by the enemy knowing that Cornwallis and um, Alexandra Leslie, the regiments combined of 2,650 men are less than 30 miles away. Yes, having a, finding a horse may be one thing, but if you know the, that the uh, enemy uh, leaders of Cornwallis and Leslie are, are less than 30 miles away, you could run the risk of being caught in, um, in open terrain. And if there's one thing... Um, even though General Nathaniel Green is not at Calpens, if there was one thing that he preached in, uh, in one of the first acts that he uh, saw go into play when he arrived into North Carolina in December of 1780, what was that, folks? 
Any soldier who left uh, the confines of camp without the consent of the generals above or of uh, high-ranking officers above, what happened to that uh, fellow soldier or fellow group of um, soldiers? Well, if they came back, they were uh, met with swift uh, discipline, which also meant uh, getting tried before their peers and the um, officers as well, and with the ultimate sentence of being hung. Well, you know, if you're going to maintain order, you've got to, um, sometimes you have to do things that aren't pleasant, but it's also meant to teach a lesson for the entire army unit as a whole. So, um, anyways, the answer, believe it or not, to the question, uh, not to get off track there, but the answer to the question is uh, prisoners, British troop prisoners. So, what is General Morgan worried about? Well, he knows, besides seeing to it that his troops gather the necessary provisions, he's making sure that British troop prisoners are secured to where they don't escape. And why would that worry uh, General Morgan? Well, if the British prisoners escape and they make it, they make their way back to where um, they know that, to where they know that they see Cornwallis and Leslie, they can advise Cornwallis and Leslie and their uh, troops of where the battle was and that there is uh, a large um, contingent group of Patriot forces that are still out on the battlefield. And hey, you all might as well take advantage of it and surprise them with an ambush. So the prisoners need to be secured to where they don't escape, but under the, but also um, this needs to, the, the prisoners need to be secured so that, um, when the time comes, um, prisoner exchanges can be conducted. How is that uh, even remotely possible in a time of war where prisoner exchanges are um, seen as something acceptable? Well, I can tell you this much that throughout the, rev throughout the Revolutionary War, but it was a common practice um, during 18th century warfare alone, that prisoner exchanges were taking place. And the exchanges occurred based upon the rank and the circumstances at stake. So, for example, if the British captured three lieutenants and, say, seven uh, privates, I'm just going to use this as a random example, and let's say the Americans have a lieutenant colonel a lieutenant and a colonel, and say they have uh, five uh, privates, five British privates. Now, of course, the British having three American lieutenants and the rank after lieutenant being lieutenant colonel, and then, of course, there's a colonel, it may not be the most equal uh, distribution in terms of rankings, but it's enough of a um, rank to where a release or a prisoner exchange is doable. So in other words, would it be fair to say that if the British had 10 privates and say the 10 privates on the Patriot side and the uh, Patriots had only three uh, British privates, do you think it's fair to say that uh, a prisoner exchange is going to be able to go through? Very unlikely. If a prisoner exchange can go through, it's going to need to be based upon having officers 
within the uh, prison within the prisoner uh, groupings to be of um, to be of not of the highest ranking, but but also if it means uh, doing so from uh, middle ground ranking. It doesn't have to be necessarily a general. They could be you know colonels, lieutenant colonels, uh, corporals, uh, lieutenants, and even at the lowest level of general rank, uh, brigadier general. So it's these uh, prisoner exchanges are done based upon the grounds that um, that both sides, if they may not have the same exact numbers of prisoners, the numbers need to be somewhat close. So if the British have 10 prisoners of ours, if we don't have 10 of theirs, but if we have eight, then it is um, likely that an exchange can be made, but it's all based upon the rank of the uh, soldiers on each side. You know, the rank itself can be what's at stake. Uh, circumstances um, being, um, say, if the uh, prisoners have um, not shown any aggression and, say, a British officer makes his way into the camp of Patriot um, forces, and this is, say, in a time when a battle is not about to commence, but he says to uh, someone of high rank in the uh, Patriot side, I, I can strike up a deal for you. I hear that you have a couple of my um, officers. If you are willing to let them go, that would be one thing, but the only way that can happen is if um, is if you are willing to let them go, then I'm willing to uh, let X number of officers that we have on your side go, and then we can um, forget that this happened. So, yes, these prisoner exchanges occurred, and they occurred um, as long as uh, certain conditions were met, and as long as the... Um, as long as... Uh, those whom were uh, captured did not uh, possess or uh, show any kind of threat towards, um, as long as they didn't show any kind of threat towards um, their uh, captors. And for those of you who were with me when we uh, discussed Jack Jewett's ride, remember what we uh, talked about as to why Monticello was saved? Well, the reason, one of the reasons why Monticello was not burnt by Colonel Tarleton and the British uh, Dragoon forces was because Jefferson, when Thomas Jefferson was governor, he had come up with a plan uh, to, um, to see to it that the uh, British prisoners were housed in a barracks facility in Charlottesville that became known as, uh, barracks, as, as the prison barracks, and there is a road called Barracks Road named after those uh, prison barracks facility. But Jefferson oversaw to it that the prisoners were treated humanely. Even some of the uh, highest-ranking uh, British and Hessian officers often dined with him, and they, it turns out that they had interests in music, just like Jefferson did. After all, we must keep in mind that Jefferson was a very uh, talented um, violinist. And so many of the officers uh, shared um, their love of music with the governor, and Therefore, uh, Jefferson also, right before uh, the inevitable happened when uh, the invasion of Virginia took place or leading up to when the British um, came to Monticello, Jefferson had um, ordered that the prisoners be sent to Maryland. Had Thomas Jefferson not treated those prisoners humanely, then Monticello would have been burnt. So 
we must remember that if prisoners on both sides are being treated humanely, then the greater the likelihood that a prisoner exchange is willing to, to be done, not so much on the ranks of the um, officers or those whom are imprisoned, but how, um, but how they are being treated and the and other uh, various uh, circumstances that lie at stake. So that we just need to keep in mind that um, unfortunately not all prisoners were treated humanely. I should keep that in mind because um, most notably at New York, uh, thousands of prisoners uh, were sent, uh, American prisoners were sent aboard British warships and many of them died. Um, they lived in inhumane conditions and they were given two choices. You either um, take up arms with the British and you'll be forgiven for all of your um, wrongdoings, and that is uh, taking up allegiances against the crown. If you choose not to take up si arms with the British, then you will remain in the prison ship and uh, pretty much die a horrific death, which historians know that at least about 12,000 uh, men uh, died um, aboard prison ships. Uh, and to me, that uh, I can't compare that under no circumstances to 6 million uh, Jews who sadly lost their lives in the, Amer in the Holocaust. But for 12,000 uh, men or soldiers to perish uh, on the uh, prison ships, that to me is like the, it, it's, it would be fair to say that is, um, that could have been our version of a mini Holocaust for the times during the American Revolution. So prisoner exchanges were essential because it did fill the holes uh, that were missing when uh, soldiers were captured by the opposing forces. The Cowpens uh, victory enabled Patriot forces to consider, believe it or not, folks, it enabled uh, the, the victory at Cowpens enabled Patriot forces to consider using British prisoners as troops fighting against their former country of allegiance, being that of the crown, a.k.a. England. So we should keep in mind that during this uh, southern um, campaign that both sides were willing to use prisoners to fight, for, to fight with them. I mean, we have to remember that even Colonel Tarleton took prisoners from Camden and made them uh, take up um, allegiances with the crown by fighting in the... Um, fighting in uh, Tarleton's uh, Cavalry uh, Dragoon Regiments. So allegiances aren't always, or rather I should say loyalties are not always 100% secure. And just remember, even if you are taken prisoner, you are pretty much given two choices. You either take up arms with the enemy and you could be forgiven of any treason or any treasonous activities, or or you, if you are on a prison ship or in a prison um, barracks facility, you'll just, you know, rot there until you die. I know that doesn't sound nice, but those were pretty much the two, um, the two options you had. After uh, Morgan's troop forces had crossed the Broad River at Island Ford later in the day on January the 17th of 1781, where did they journey next, considering the presence of British troop prisoners? So we have to remember, it's one thing for them to be crossing um, a shallow uh, body of uh, water along a river, or, or a shallow stream along a river, I should say, but, we're, but we also have prisoners that we're transporting. So 
there's a lot at stake here. I mean, the last thing General Morgan doesn't need to have happen is a, a prison outbreak that could not only jeopardize the safety of the uh, troops, but perhaps um, it could lead to um, perhaps even death as well. How so? Well, you know, if prisoners escape from their shackles, they could um, hold troops um, hostage somehow, or they could seize their uh, rifles and then uh, start shooting upon the um, upon the uh, Patriot forces. I mean, these you can't assume anything. But General Morgan's men moved northward towards a place called Gilbertown, uh, spelled G-I-L-B-E-R-T-O-W-N. Gilbertown was a trading center and a camp post for both sides during the Revolutionary War. How about that? So, uh, you know, usually when we think of trading centers and camp posts during the war, we usually would like to think of it as being just for uh, one side. But it turns out this particular location uh, welcomed um, both sides. And I'm almost wondering, is it fair to say that there were those whom were neutral, but yet welcomed both sides? Uh, it, it could be possible. But Gilbertown is located outside of Kings Mountain and uh, Charlotte. Uh, and as most of us should know, Kings Mountain and Charlotte, North Carolina, border the North and South Carolina line. However, uh, General Morgan... Even though he's moving northward towards Gilbertown, that's not his ultimate destination, folks. General Morgan has to decide what course of direction to pursue, given that the roads from Gilbertown go west into the mountains and northeast into Moravian settlements around the confines of present-day Winston-Salem, North Carolina. So, think about it, folks. Even in 18th century time, there are multiple uh, routes for traveling. They, the roads may not be sophisticated like we know them as today, but the roads that were available, that's what people had, and you didn't know any better. But, of course, if Mother Nature didn't cooperate and it rained incessantly, which we've learned about from various uh, podcast episodes uh, to this book, when it rained incessantly, meaning nonstop for 10 days, it's fair to say that uh, travel was halted, not just from a militaristic perspective, but travel in general. So the roads from Gilbertown were part of were part of a uh, well-established road. Does anybody want to take a um, guess at what that established road is or was? The answer is the Great Wagon Road. The Great Wagon Road was an 800-mile trail route that went from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And believe it or not, it took a windy um, turnabout where it did go west into present-day Martinsburg, West Virginia. But, of course, at that time, uh, it would have been considered Virginia. But then made its way back um, down a southwesterly route and went all the way as far south as into Augusta, Georgia, uh, which is located north of Savannah, and Augusta, Georgia, is on the Georgia-South Carolina line. So that's quite a, a long stretch of road, folks, 800 miles. And we should also keep in mind, too, that, um, that many, uh, many individuals whom um, established settlements in the Carolinas came from um, Philadelphia, 
and uh, Lancaster, PA. They went on that uh, Great Wagon Road, um, or what we call the uh, Great Valley Road uh, route, and they would have probably gone by um, a Conestoga wagon because uh, there was a place in Lancaster, PA, for those of you who were with me when we talked about the fire of his genius, Robert Fulton and the American Dream. Robert Fulton was from Lancaster, PA, and where he grew up, there was the Lancaster... Um, Horse and Buggy Company, I believe it was, that um, constructed the horse and buggies that allowed for people to uh, travel along this great wagon road. And for those uh, individuals who left Pennsylvania to go uh, establish settlements in what we now know as uh, North and South Carolina, and uh, to an extent in Georgia. So the great wagon road, folks, um, so the roads from Gilbert Town, just remember, were part of the Great Wagon Road, the 800-mile trail route that went from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, all the way to Augusta, Georgia. Where exactly uh, did General Morgan's forces travel course-wise? Did they move north or south crossing the Catawba River? They moved north. But eventually they would move on a more southerly route where the prisoners would be better protected. So we have to remember that this, um, their travel is not just one straight uh, road or one straight line for traveling. They are taking different routes, but they're doing this to also catch uh, Cornwallis off. If they keep traveling on the same stretch of road, there is either a likelihood that they could be surprised by the enemy or there could be a scout or a team of um, pickets on the British end whom could be watching from a distance and alerting Cornwallis of Morgan's movements that are not uh, too terribly far in the vicinity. So it's, you know, it's one thing to lead an army into, a, um, into one particular direction, but you've also got to find a way to uh, shift gears at any moment's notice. And think about the prisoners. If you want to ensure that the prisoners are going to be safe, then you need to do everything you can to, I don't say deliberately keep them off track, but you need to keep the prisoners um, focused to the point to where they won't get so caught up in one particular direction setting that um, that if they come across it again, they'll know, hey, this might be a good place to engage in an escape route attempt. Even the prisoners have to be caught off guard. Uh, January 19th, 1781, two days after the Battle of Calpins, General Cornwallis finally began his chase of General Morgan. Although Cornwallis was disappointed by, Curl by Colonel Tarleton's performance at Calpins, and he had every reason to be, he would still need his support for the upcoming North Carolina invasion. Well, you know, yes, you can be disappointed all you want, but at some point, given the situation that the British are in, they're going to have to put some of this um, ill will to the side because they need to regroup. Because if they still uh, are going to remain... Um, what do you call it, bitter towards one another in terms of pointing the fingers, then how are they going to be able to get any resolution achieved on their end? Cornwallis, um, you know, Cornwallis, uh, yes, he, 
you know, he struck gold in South Carolina early on with those victories at Waxhaws, Camden, and Charleston. But ever since, um, you know, he did have some issues with some ambushes uh, and surprise attacks that led before uh, the Battle of Camden and after Camden. But after Camden, things just have not been the same in South Carolina. And, you know, in order for Cornwallis to now go north, think about it. He's already, um, he's already burned. I think if I'm not mistaken, didn't we learn that he, um, that he, uh, burned, uh, some of his, um, baggage, not some of his personal baggage, but the troops burned, um, numerous, um, amounts of, uh, provisions largely because of the, uh, terrain that they were um, moving along was not suited for um, for the uh, excessive amount of um, supplies they were carrying based upon the multitude of uh, supply wagons being transported. So for Cornwallis to be able to um, have any chance of being successful going north into North Carolina, who's he going to need to rely upon? Tarleton's guides and scouts. After all, Tarleton, um, Tarleton probably has a little bit more familiarity of North Carolina than um, Cornwallis. But at the same time, uh, is it fair to say that, while yes, Cornwallis needs Tarleton, is it, would it be fair to say that it's going to result in, um, in better outcome uh, from a militaristic approach? It's a 50-50 chance. Yes, Cornwallis will need Tarleton's guides and scouts for covering ground that was currently unfamiliar, but it may not automatically mean that that the guides and the scouts are going to be able to uh, give Cornwallis everything he needs from an, from an intelligence uh, standpoint. Although Cornwallis began his chase of General Morgan on January 19th, did he still face delays from within? He did. Well, what kind of delays? Well, Colonel Tarleton uh, went about crossing the Broad River on January 20th, and he this was just not a crossing, folks. Tarleton wanted to obtain intelligence on Morgan's movement. All right, well, that's good, but how long is that going to take? And then by the time that mission's done, then you've got to go back and relay the information to Cornwallis, and Cornwallis will... He'll be kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. Why? Because one or two days are going to be missed out on advance movement. Was the uh, British Army designed primarily uh, for war in Europe? And, you know, I may have already um, mentioned some stuff. So, if I mentioned some stuff a moment ago, um, pardon me for doing that, but I feel that what I have to mention next is important because it does make a, a key um, difference, or not just a key difference, but a um, major understanding of the greater uh, conflict down in the, um, in the American South uh, during, the, um, during this uh, greater conflict given that the war is now in its uh, sixth and seventh years.
So was the British Army designed primarily for war in Europe? Yes. How so? Well, for starters, most European cities provided better landscapes that enabled easier navigation access behind moving large supplies from one end to another. So in other words, supply wagons um, were better suited uh, for um, moving uh, stuff or provisions from uh, large cities where there's a greater population of people. And when you have a greater population of people in the cities, um, they can see to it that uh, your provisions will be better secured and not fall into the hands of those whom um, whom would set out to uh, not only access those provisions illegally, but perhaps destroy them. And then you have the presence of uh, magazine houses in European cities. And what are magazine houses, folks? I know what a magazine house is. I've seen a, uh, the most famous magazine house I've seen has been one at Williamsburg. The magazine house is where mass quantities of military supplies are stored, like gunpowder, muskets, rifles, you name it. Um, the last time I was inside Williamsburg's uh, magazine house, it was before the pandemic began. And I hope one of these days it will reopen. I know that the magazine house there is undergoing a uh, major renovation. But if you ever have the chance one day when it is fully renovated and they are able to let you inside to go upstairs and see everything, it is a sight to behold, to say the least. So, yes, the British Army is much more suited for war in Europe. And I think it's also fair to say this as well, because prior to and after April of 1775, when the first shots around the world were fired, of course, we all know where the first shots around the world were fired in April, uh, on April the uh, 19th of uh, 1775. Where were they fired at, folks? Lexington and Concord, Massachusetts. But prior to and after April of 1775, 90% of America's population is living on farms versus urbanized settings. So, in other words, is it fair to say that for the British to transport large army supply wagons in, in an agrarian versus an urbanized setting, is that going to be a lot more complicated? Oh, absolutely. To be traveling, to move your supplies along um, in an agrarian setting where you're not just uh, going through uh, grasslands or flatlands, but how about um, land um, that also has... Um, access to river and waterways and how are you going to move those goods if it means having to uh, cross a river well you're going to have to uh, if the if the river has endured incessant rainfall you've got to wait till the water levels recede and it also might mean having to take uh, provisions off the supply wagons and getting that um, and getting the wagon itself if if the ferry is uh, big enough, or what we might think of in today's time as like some kind of a uh, barge, but um, being able to um, get stuff moved by ferry um, may be your best option. So the bottom line is is that um, the British Army is not equipped to uh, transport large 
supplies uh, from one end to another in an agrarian setting, not just so much because 90% of America's population is living on farms, it's just that um, very few Americans at this time are living in the cities, and plus two cities, um, how, do you, how do I say it, cities are probably not the safest place to be in during this uh, conflict. Um, you're better off being in a more secure location where uh, the enemy cannot get to you. Now, uh, it is fair to say, though, that as the war dragged on further into the late 1770s into 1780, the British Army began struggling and making adjustments into terrain completely unknown and foreign. British supply wagons would have comprised of what, folks? Ammunition, hospital provisions, and then you have what's called the provision train, which stored all food and rum that ensured an army's long-term survival. So think about it, folks. We don't have any Gatorade. We don't have uh, Deer Park bottled water. Rum is really your safest um, form of beverage to uh, drink. Tarleton's uh, Dragoon and Cavalry Forces were really the only part of the British Army in South Carolina who didn't, whom did not have to constantly rely upon hauling luggage. Think about it. If you're um, a dragoon rider, you don't really need to have much with you. However, uh, Tarleton's dragoon and cavalry forces are not totally immune because they have spent, they are now spending more time hunting down Morgan's movements, which left them exhausted prior to and even after the Battle of Cowpens had been uh, had uh, finished, but most notably by the time Cowpens began, because as we have learned, Tarleton's men were not—they um, were exhausted. They were not ready to go in terms of fighting. What had uh, Patriot General Daniel Morgan achieved on January the twenty-third of seventeen eighty-one? His army crossed over the Catawba River at Sherrill's Ford in the most trying of weather circumstances, cold and rainy. I always thought that you'd be better off crossing a river when the water receded or when the weather was just a little bit better. Well, it's probably fair to say that even, even when you have the momentum, you've still got to find a way to be clever enough to outsmart the enemy and if it means doing it in the most trying of weather circumstances and you prevail, then more power uh, then more power to the side that was willing to take that risk. Although Morgan was still on the move, he saw militiamen come and go. But now uh, he aimed to muster uh, the militia on the Catawbas, on the Catawba River's east side with the intent on protecting the fords and keeping Cornwallis's forces from gaining access entry. Okay, so militiamen have come and gone, but he is now going to recruit new militiamen along, um, who live along the Catawba River's east side, whom are willing to go the extra mile to uh, protect those fords, those shallow waterways, and preventing Cornwallis's forces Cornwallis' forces from being allowed entry onto the fords and uh, making their way over. 
Two days after uh, General Morgan's uh, forces had um, achieved something unthinkable, January 25th, 1781, uh, Cornwallis' troop forces arrived at Ramsers Mill, north of Kings Mountain, during a 36-mile march in three days. Okay, you march 36 miles in three days, folks. That's uh, 12 miles a day. They crossed uh, the Catawba on January 23rd. Okay, wait a minute. If Cornwallis's forces crossed the Catawba on January 23rd, didn't we just hear a moment ago that General Daniel Morgan's forces did the same thing too? Who got there first and who got there later? Well, it turns out General Morgan's forces were the first to cross. Cornwallis's forces did so two hours after Morgan's men finished their crossing. Two hours, folks. I mean, I, I can't imagine if both forces stumbled upon each other at the uh, at this uh, junction or section of the Catawba River. I mean, we could have had a uh, a battle onto itself as to who was going to be the first to cross, but who was going to be perhaps the first to capture the other uh, the other general and his forces. So why do you think Cornwallis may not have uh, been able to have gotten there either before um, Morgan or around the same time? He lacked, um, he was lacking in intelligence findings. In other words, nobody uh, bothered to tell him or did not even think of knowing that Morgan was already a step ahead. That's how... Um, insufficient and behind Britain's uh, intelligence operations are in this uh, southern campaign. It's one thing to um, be engaged in a race to pursue the enemy for Cornwallis in terms of pursuing General Morgan, but this race has become one that, that has not really had a true definitive starting point. But, it ne but is it fair to say that it, what's the likelihood that there will be a definitive ending point when it's all said and done with? I think as of right now, it would be fair to say that, that the reality behind a definitive ending point is going to be very slim unless some act of God happens within a short period of time where Cornwallis uh, can do something inevitable to break the spirits of this uh, southern continental army. Did Cornwallis's men carry excessive supply loads into their crossing at Ramser's Mill? Yes, but transporting large supply baggage quantities could not ensure British victory. And why is that, folks? Because Cornwallis's forces lacked speed and bold strategical planning. You know, if you lack the speed and the uh, advanced uh, strategical planning, then it's very hard to be able to pull off any kind of uh, surprise attack. It's it's very hard to be able to um, to be able to go the extra mile to uh, find a way to catch the enemy off guard. The failure to have speed and quick decision skill making led General Cornwallis in late January of 1781. And if I may have given something away earlier, I do apologize, uh, but I will uh, better um, 
I, I will um, go about explaining this a little bit better. So again, if I mentioned some stuff earlier, I do apologize, but it does not hurt to clarify things uh, now to make this all the worth uh, sharing. In late January of 1781, uh, to order, let me ref let me rephrase here, folks. Failure to have to have the speed and quick decision skill making led General Cornwallis in late January of 1781 to order a fire. To order a fire, folks. What would he, why would he want to order a fire? This is going to sound crazy, folks, and I, I think it's truly beyond crazy, but it does happen. He orders a fire on all the supply wagons, meaning the provisions would no longer be accessible to troop forces short and long term. Destruction, setting the fire to all wagons, meant further delays in catching Patriot forces under General Daniel Morgan's command. Yes, these supply wagons are, they have essential provisions for the troops, but is, but is Cornwallis realizing now that these supply wagons are causing, um, that the supply wagons are alone are causing um, a major detrimental problem in terms of just being able to get the stuff from point A to point B? Yes. Uh, how long um, did it take General Nathaniel Green uh, to get, confirmation of General Morgan's victory at Calpens. It took uh, six days. Less than a week, but almost a week. January 23rd, the day uh, which General Green got the official word of victory, was also the same day that General Morgan's army successfully crossed the Catawba River at Sherrill's Ford. Prior to and around the time of the Calpens battle, General Green um, he wasn't just sitting around twirling his thumb doing nothing. He was engaged in tasks from drilling and training the troops to writing um, letters to Congress requesting more troops along with more provisions. Well, I think it's important that a general does whatever is necessary to look after uh, for his uh, troop forces, not just short term, but long term. That's what George Washington was doing before, right around the time the war began. So, you know, we've got a leader down south, a general, Nathaniel Green, who might as well be his own version of George Washington. After receiving Morgan's battle report on Calpens, Green requested orders to have the Continental Army's prisoners stationed at Salisbury and Hillsborough, including provisions, all be moved up north into Virginia, as well as the same for transporting General Morgan's prisoners to Virginia. Perhaps by transporting them to Virginia, they uh, will be as far away from any um, militaristic action that has the potential of uh, taking place. And by being further away from the action, it, it means that these prisoners do not have access of uh, being able to uh, rejoin their, um, to rejoin their um, armies um, whom they were uh, serving under. General, uh, January 27th of 1781, General Green rejoined the units or regiments of his army command, but instructed General Isaac Yugi to stay behind and oversee troops in the Shiraw district region. Green went 100 miles across territory already scarred by civil war amongst loyalists and patriots. This 100-mile journey would be the most treacherous accompanied 
it would be the most treacherous given that it was accompanied by one guide, an aide, and three dragoon guards. Think about it, folks. Five people accompanying Nathaniel Green. He's going 100 miles. Who knows what he could encounter? There's no guarantee that you'll be safe the whole way um, to your final destination 100 miles away. For all we know, there could be people... Um, scouting the forests and all of a sudden they see some riders go by what side are they on hey it looks like a, a, some patriots okay if i'm if i've got ties to the crown and i'm a loyalist i'm looking for some revenge shoot i can go to the nearest post and say hey i just saw some uh, patriot troops go by you might want to keep tabs on them you might be able to uh, catch them by surprise and Yes, this may have been seen as a reckless um, journey, but the Southern campaign is one of doing things unconventionally. So there again for Nathaniel Green, he has to do some things that are very uncommon at a time when it when um, at a time when um, there still is uncertainty at a time when um, when many are beginning to wonder when is this conflict going to end? And what happens if we don't come away, being on the American side, what happens if we don't come away victorious? Well, there are things that could happen, but um, we're going to find out here shortly. Um, how many days did it take General Green and his small unit to officially arrive at the Catawba River? Did it take a week? Did it take um, half a week? Or in a sense, did it take three days? It took three days. They arrived on January 30th of 1781 only to see the army still fully intact, which is a very good thing, considering his one major concern pertained to what, folks? Lacking advantages. Well, what does that mean? Lacking advantages can mean just about anything. What it means is for Nathaniel Green, if he knows that he is lacking one particular advantage or multiple if he's lacking uh, certain advantages that he knows the enemy has would it be fair to say that nathaniel green is not going to risk uh going into all-out battle yes he's not going to why is that because for nathaniel green he believes in preserving and maintaining every ounce of strength that lies in his army I've said this before, I'd say it again. All it takes is one major battle. If it's ill, um, if it's an ill-prepared battle, if it's a battle that you go into and the, and the opposition has more advantages than you do, and if you lose, there's no guarantee that you might have a functioning army um, a week from now. There might not be a guarantee that you might have a functioning army left that can even fight. And if that's the case... This cause itself is completely over. So, the southern. So, in other words, if the southern army collapses, then the southern governments in Georgia and Carolinas will crumble, fall apart. And if the Continental Army as a whole comes apart, then the flames for independence get extinguished, resulting in the return to the old status quo. And what was that old status quo, folks? Thirteen colonies becoming subjects under British authority. So, for Nathaniel Green, 
it's all about knowing how to pick the right battles when it comes to fighting. You know, it's one thing to engage the enemy in a, in a battle, in an open battle, but you better make sure your army has advantages. You better make sure that your army know, knows what it's getting itself into, and you as a leader better make sure that you know what you're sending your troops into, because if you don't, then the, um, then the buck stops with you. And in this case, it would not be for all the right reasons. What happened on January the 31st of 1781? General Green ordered the Continental troops along the Catawba River to move east towards Salisbury due to river levels dropping, which come the next day, February 1st, saw Patriot forces successfully cross the river knowing Cornwallis's troops were somewhere nearby. Green's efforts, including the knowledge of central North Carolina's roads and rivers, deemed significant in ensuring Patriot forces remained a step ahead, considering their leadership rested on what, folks? Intellectual skills and doing things unconventional, which made survival long-term all the more essential. So is it fair to say that um, that Cornwallis is still on the run? Is it fair to say that Colonel Tarleton's on the run? Yes. Do they know where they're really going? Well, they may think they know where they're going, but the problem is that they don't have the same intellectual skills that General Green and General Morgan have and other officers uh, that, are, that make up the Southern Continental Army. Yes, Cornwallis may have these numbers, but numbers alone, I've said before, I'd say it again, numbers alone aren't going to automatically qualify victory. Supply wagons aren't going to automatically qualify for victory, considering that Cornwallis has now ordered them all to be fired, fired upon, destroyed. So if you've destroyed your fire, your uh, wagon supplies, then how can your own army function? I mean, I think it's fair to say that, that your army could have functioned with the supply wagons. The problem was that going into the terrain in the southern, um, the southern colonies is a whole nother story. But it's not so much that it's a whole nother story. It's the fact that this war has gone on longer than originally anticipated to where um, transporting, where logistics becomes an even bigger nightmare. It's one thing to be in one terrain for X amount of time, but when you're now switching gears and going into terrain that you've never been accustomed to before, the logistical process becomes even more daunting. And when the logistical process becomes all the more complicated, then how can leaders function and be able to do what's right for their um, for their soldiers below. Well, we've covered a lot of ground, and when I'm back on the air again next, we're going to be learning more to what will eventually be this race to the Dan. It's already in the works, but we haven't gotten to that climactic point just yet to where we can say that we are actually around the confines of the Dan River. But we are getting there. Well, thank you for your time as always, and I look forward to being back on the air again, and thank you again for being such great listeners. 
wherever you all may live, uh, continue to stay safe. Take care for now.